0: Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. It's the Dickens Bicentenary this year and, as we're all big Dickens fans here at Penguin, we've got a Dickens special for you. It wouldn't be a Dickens special without Claire Tomlin, whose book Charles Dickens' A Life is a riveting story of poverty and riches, loyalty and betrayal, and triumph and tragedy. We'll be featuring a chat between Claire and her editor, Tony Lacey, as well as an extract from the audiobook edition of her work. We Also, have some remaster content from an old archive recording of Dombey and Son. So, first to kick us off, here's Claire Tomlin and Tony Lacey talking about Charles Dickens, his life, his loves, and the London that shaped him.
1: Uh, hello, I'm Tony Lacey, um, and uh, it's a privilege for me to be talking today to Claire Tomlin, whose biography of Dickens was published um, just before Christmas, and uh, it partly celebrates the 200th anniversary of Dickens' birth in February. Well, I thought we'd start at the beginning, or sort of almost before the beginning. Um, no one obviously knows where talent comes from or aspiration, I suppose, but it is intriguing that his uh, paternal grandparents worked in a in a sort of cultural milieu, didn't they? Or oh, I mean, I realise as servants, but...
2: Yes, butler and housekeeper to the crews, who were a very grand political family, a Whig family he was a landowner and she was a very cultivated woman, in fact she was the mistress of Richard Brinsley Sheridan for a long time during the marriage and um, they entertained Sheridan a great deal and Fox, Charles James Fox, the politician and Burke, it was an extraordinary household um, Dickens's father John Dickens was actually a posthumous child, the butler died Early in that pregnancy, but he clearly grew up in this milieu, where there were some of the greatest, wittiest, hardest drinking uh, hardest borrowings they were always borrowing money, and most promiscuous uh, men in England, and heard must have heard some of their brilliant conversation um, and indeed, when he was found a job with the navy pay office um in the uh towards the end of the napoleonic wars this was uh, just before the birth of um his first two children fanny and charles uh the job came obviously through those connections through that political patronage so it, it is interesting and
1: um, he had a sort of way with words, Dickens' father, didn't he? Do, do, do you think he picked that up from... <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the...
2: He, had, he had a very grandiose manner of speech and of writing, yes. And it is noticeable that he described himself as Esquire when he was announcing the birth of his son. Um, well, Esquire, he was the son of two servants. I suppose right. he wasn't technically a, <laughs> an Esquire at all. But he saw himself as a gentleman. He saw himself as being considerably grander than he actually was. Yes.
1: And on the other side, um, on the maternal side, there was a sort of dark secret there, wasn't there? Or how secret was it? I don't know.
2: Well, I think it was. Um, His mother, Elizabeth's father, Charles Barrow, they were were, uh, a better educated family, actually. They were musical and had literary tastes. Um, but Charles Barrow also worked for the Navy pay office the Navy was the biggest employer in England during the Napoleonic Wars and had a large family and just before uh, little Charles was born uh, named for his maternal grandfather uh, Charles Barrow was found to have been embezzling for years embezzling the money of the pay office and he had to flee the country uh, before he was arrested and, and tried and sent to prison which he certainly would have been and I always think that that can't have been much mentioned <laughs> when <laughs> the children were growing up. You'd say, oh, your grandfather's abroad because yeah. he had, otherwise he'd be in prison. Uh, and I thought it's, it's, in a way, a very suitable beginning for the life of a novelist. So there's a secret hanging there which yeah. is never mentioned, which everybody knows about. Um, and, a, and of course the
1: other secret was the the blacking factory the working in the blacking factory which we all now, everybody knows about that but actually nobody did know about it did, well, did in, they until late in, quite in, late on he indeed, told his biographer
2: Indeed, um, when, when Charles came out of the blacking factory which he'd hated so much he never mentioned it but now he tells us that neither his father nor his mother who, had, who were complicit in him going there ever mentioned it again so that here was another secret hanging in the air, which everybody knew was, was there, but nobody ever talked about. And indeed, when you think about Dickens' life, towards the end of Dickens' life, there were a great many secrets in his life mm. which were similarly not to be mentioned. Yes. People knew the inner circle of his friends, they all knew, but yeah. they were not to be discussed.
1: We've jumped a bit forward, but going back, the first trauma in his life, clearly, was leaving Kent. He'd had a seems like a rather idyllic childhood um, in Chatham. And suddenly his father moves to London. And you suggest in the book that this always was a kind of idyll in his mind. Um, do you think that was a real trauma?
2: Yes, I think it was. Because in Kent, uh, the family life was very happy. Um, the more younger brothers and sisters being born, Charles and Fanny were made much of. They were clever, charming children. They were encouraged to sing. Uh, they were taken to the pub with their parents and they would stand on the table and perform songs. And uh, his father had some books, 18th century novels, plays, fairy stories, Arabian Nights, and as soon as he could read, Charles would absolutely immerse himself in reading. And the school he went to their good little private school run by a clever man, They saw that this was an exceptional child, and I think he he got a sense of himself and his own possibilities, and that is why it was so traumatic. When he went to London with his family, uh, nobody said anything about school, his father was in debt, his father got called off to prison, everything became a nightmare. He was sent to the pawn shop, pawning the books, he liked reading, pawning the furniture, Um, and, Kent remained in his mind always the idyllic place, the perfect place. And that is where he spent his honeymoon in Kent. He acquired Gadshill, um he loved showing Kent to friends, to family. It sort begs
1: of the question of what he really felt about London, doesn't it? We always <laughs> think of him as being a L- the preeminent London novelist, but in many ways he seems to want to get out of it as much as possible.
2: I think that's absolutely right. London was his canvas, was his subject. London he knew, London he walked through, he knew every inch of London, and he was based in London for most of his life. But actually he was always getting out of London um, and you know, g- taking his family for holidays out of London. Uh, first, you know, places like Richmond, uh, then to the seaside, Broadstairs, uh, Dover, and then to France, to Boulogne. Um, one's of the Isle of Wight they would go, and he took them to live in Italy for a year, he took them to Switzerland. Mm. His pictures of London are, are so dark and dirty and and, and full of corruption and he often sort of talks about this in his letters too, and how he longs to be out of London.
1: So he arrives in London as a child, and then he has the rather uh, uh, lots of moving around with the family and a very skimpy education.
2: Very skimpy. Very Ended skimpy. Ended at 15. Ended 15 at 15. And yet,
1: six or seven years later, he's kind of famous. Well, nine years it turns Nine took years. He, le- he, he, he
2: leaves school at 15. Nine years later, he is a famous author. It is absolutely extraordinary that that he yeah. he went to work as a more or less as an office boy, clerk, perhaps in a law firm, he taught himself shorthand, um, became a legal reporter, became a newspaper, re- uh, became a parliamentary reporter. He reported reports for the House of Commons, um, and then uh, um, a general reporter. And he began to write sketches of London and give them to newspapers and magazines, and they were popular. He began to sell them. They were made into a book, and that led to him being commissioned to write his first novel, The Pickwick Papers, and The Pickwick Papers, which went out in monthly installments in cheap paper wrappers, made him famous. And that was nine years after he'd left school at 15. I think it's the most extraordinary ascent of any writer.
1: Yes, one can't think of anything really equivalent to it. And by this time, he's got married, or he got married just afterwards.
2: He gets married on the strength of the Pickwick Papers being commissioned. He works out. He was very orderly, Dickens. He worked out that that would enable him to support his
1: wife. Now, he'd already had a sort of, uh, sorry to use that word, trauma again. It probably wasn't quite trauma, with a, a young woman before that, Maria... Mariah Biednall. Yes, um, yes. Some people suggest that or, or you suggest, I think, um, that this um failed relationship uh rather sort of coloured his relationships with women afterwards. Am I putting that rightly or is that Well sort of
2: I think I think he really was in love with Mariah Biedenel. He was really desperate about that. It was passion. You know, he would walk the streets all night to stand beneath her window, that sort of thing. Um, When he met Catherine Hogarth, a nice Scottish girl with pink cheeks and blue eyes and sweet, sweet, docile nature, I think he saw her as a wife and I think he wanted to be married. He wanted to put his life in order. He wanted to have his own household and he wanted a wife in the bed and a wife at the breakfast table and uh, everything to be neat and nice. And I think that's really what that was about. And there was this moment during the engagement when she threw a tantrum or something, and he wrote her this very chilling letter Mm. saying that she wasn't to carry on like that or there will be no second warning, he said, or or he'd break
1: off. As you know, it all went sort of horribly wrong uh, later. But there are quite early on, there, there were suggestions from him to Forster, were there, that he wasn't happy in the marriage?
2: He said afterwards to Forster that he'd sort of said this, yes um, I think um, uh, he worried a bit about whether she was spending enough time with Charlie when he was a baby, the first child I mean poor Catherine, she was pregnant in the first month of the marriage and after that she was pregnant almost all the time she was just producing babies How many Uh, altogether? Ten? Ten, yes of whom one little Dora, the the third little girl died, all the others grew up
1: well, this in itself is a mystery, isn't it? Because yes. he didn't want more than He wanted than only three, three. when three? he had
2: his third, Katie. He had Charlie, Mamie, Mary, Mamie and Katie. And he adored them. And he was really happy with them and he had great fun with them. Yeah. And then the, one after another, more and more boys came bouncing <laughs> out. And he was sort of jokey about them and gave them funny names and played with them. But he didn't really want them. And you sort of feel this with yes. the way he... Redid them actually. Did
1: you not know about contraception? Did contraception not exist? Well, it's a
2: big, big question, which it's really impossible to pronounce upon. It, it puzzles me because, for instance, he did find out about chloroform to give Catherine in, uh, when she the babies were being delivered, and he was a bit of a pioneer using that in London. Yes. So why he didn't consult medical friends about, with, the, at any rate, some suggestions of how he might limit the births, I yeah. cannot imagine.
1: The, the, when the marriage, uh, when he left her separated, um, he behaved what seems on the face of it to be in a very cruel uh, manner. Um, what, what do you think happened to him? He, he sort of went mad. Uh, is yes. that what, well, what Katie, his, one of his Katie, own daughters his, said? His clever
2: daughter, yeah. Katie, said he, he was behaved like a madman. I think this happens to people quite commonly in middle life. <laughs> There's some crisis in the marriage. And I think um, Dickens had this great image of the family man and the sort of the celebrator of family values and the domestic hearth and the cosy life and the Christmas, you know, the children gathering around the fire, all quarrels being made up, everybody. But so I think it was very embarrassing for him. And he wanted to present himself to the world as the one who was in the right, that it was somehow a failing of Catherine's yes. that ended the marriage. It wasn't a failing of Dickens's. Yes, And this I think, made him behave much worse than he should have done. I mean, he behaved very badly anyhow.
1: There's an unforgivable letter, isn't there, to... A letter uh, to
2: Miss Coote, suggesting that she just pretended to love the children, didn't really love her own children. Inexplicable. (laughs) And he did sort of really awful things. Once they'd separated, when Walter, the second son, died out in India. He didn't write to her, and he didn't visit her. Their son, their own son. Yeah.
1: and she behaved with great she dignity, with and she kept dignity. the letters that he wrote? She
2: behave, yes, she behaved with complete dignity, yes. Yeah. yes. But he, he hated, he demonised her family, who, of course, were very strongly supportive of her. Right.
1: Um, so that's all a sort of melancholy tale. Looking on a sort of more positive side, one of the great sort of features of his life is his male friendships, isn't it? And particularly with the rather wonderful John Forster.
2: Yes, I think one of the points of my book was to bring out that friendship, I think Forster was a key person in his life. They, he was the same age. He came from a similarly modest background. Uh, his father was a Newcastle butcher, and he was a, he'd been to a grammar school, and he came south to become a literary man, which he did. I mean, he was a very good journalist, and he wrote some very good historical biographies. He was particularly interested in the Cromwell period and the Commonwealth. They were both very left-wing. They were both very radical. Um, and they sort of fell into each other's arms. Uh, Forster saw that Dickens was a genius, and Dickens saw that Forster had everything he wanted in a friend. And Forster was soon dealing with publishers for Dickens. He was correcting proofs with Dickens. He was making suggestions even that he, he for, for the books. It was he who suggested the death of little Nell. Yes. And it was he who suggested that um, David Copperfield should be written in the first person, which was uh, a very important suggestion. Yeah. It produced that very, very great narrative. Yes. Wonderful narrative. And he
1: famously wanted... To the original ending to Great Expectations, or preferred that ending.
2: He preferred, and he preserved it. That's the thing, ah, he right, preserved yes. it so that we've got it. Right. Yes, yeah. yes. It was Bulwell-Lytton who suggested Dickens, rather crass suggestion, in my view, that Dickens yeah. should put on a happy ending. And this
1: was a friendship that lasted right to the end. I mean, yes. Forster was devastated when Dickens oh, died. Yes.
2: When, when they were young, Dickens wrote to Forster saying, you know, this friendship will last till death us do part. He actually uses the words of the marriage ceremony, more yeah. or less. Yeah. And it did. I mean, they had a few quarrels, of course. All friends do. Yes. But they absolutely, Forster Dickens asked him quite early on if he would become his biographer, and Dickens absolutely trusted Forster. Forster was the only person, I think, to whom he told everything, all his secrets, all his all his problems, yeah. all his difficulties. And um, he didn't always follow Forster's advice, but he always wanted it, yes. and he. He knew he could trust Forster and when Dickens died, it, although Forster by then had a, a nice wife and was happily married, um, he said there wouldn't be no more happiness for him now hmm. that Dickens was dead, uh, but just duty. And he sat down and he wrote his great biography of Dickens. Uh,
1: when you were talking about Forster and Dickens, you, as young men, you said they were both radical. Um I just like to raise the question of Dickens' politics. I mean, how radical was he? Do you think well,
2: he called himself a radical, a Republican? Uh, when the French uh, Revolution of, um, I think, eighteen thirty, uh, he, he was, well, no, he must have been eighteen forty-eight Revolution. He signed himself a Républicain, you know, uh, uh, Citoyen. He sort of yes. took on the, the, the yeah. phrases from the French Revolution, um, and he. He um, went to America to see in action a classless Republican Democratic society. And although he was very disappointed in what he found in America the first time he went, that is what he he sort of believed in.
1: Yes. And, of course, he was writing in the 18. 18- Well, he was writing along on this, but one of the decades he was writing at his his greatest powers was the 1840s, which bear a sort of striking similarity to our own times in some ways.
2: Yes, the hungry forties, unemployment, hunger, um, recession, things were very, very bad, yes. Dickens always felt, he felt for the poor, he felt for the people, uh, he cared about them. When he went to America, he said one of his aims in writing was to show that the poor, the little people, are as interesting as yeah. the great people, and that yeah. was so through all his life.
1: And, and they sort of responded, or oh, the public yes. sort of responded yes. to this. Didn't yes. he, he became loved very him. famous? And you know, loved. he
2: went round the industrial towns before he began going round doing his great readings and performances. He went round helping to raise money for their what we call mechanics institutes, which were sort of places where working men and women could go and find libraries. Very good. And lectures and cultural and scientific education. And those, many of those places developed later into the universities of Liverpool and Birmingham, Manchester. It was an extraordinary thing he did.
1: So if his political views were. Pretty radical. Um, his religious views seem rather conventional. That was one of the things I was rather surprised by in, in your book that he did write this book for his own children about the life of Christ, and he, he seems to have had rather conventional views about Christianity.
2: He had a sort of basic Christianity. There's no doubt. I mean, a Christmas Carol is a tale of Christian redemption. It says that if you, however much you sin, if you repent, you can be forgiven. You can make make things all right. Um, he hardly went to church. He went through a period of being a Unitarian, but then he became roughly Church of England. Uh, but he hardly went to church, as, as I say. Um, and he told his sons when they left home, he would write a letter for them. And he said he said his prayers every day and enjoined them to do much. And I think he. He accepted, he, he believed in the ba- what he saw as the basic tenets of Christianity, the Sermon on the Mount, as it were. Um, but I think it was as, as basic as that. Right. Doctrine did not interest him. Right.
1: So we get to the last, um, say, ten years of his life, and um, he's still writing great books, possibly his greatest, Great Expectations, and our, our Mutual Friend. But in well, some ways it seems a rather sad decade, um, the big secret of the mistress, Nellie Ternan. Uh, shared by only a few people, and and the increasing ill health, and this mad traipsing around the country reading. Um, I do, think do, you, do, you re, do you view it as a sad ending?
2: I think the failing health is is sad, but Dickens dealt with it with huge courage, and mm. absolutely wouldn't let it stand in the way of him going on working, as you said. Um, so it's not all sad, and also Dickens, Dickens had this extraordinary character that every now and then, even when things were very difficult and painful, he would burst out in high spirits. Mm. And he sees this particularly when his, his manager, George Dolby, who travelled with him, who adored him, uh, describes him, his very high spirits. Mm. Um, and then there's an account by American visitors very late on 1869, within a year of his death, of being at Gads Hill, and uh, uh, his daughter Mamie playing some reels on the piano. And Dickens gets up with his daughter Katie, who was married but who still spent most of her time at home with her father. And they danced. And mm. everybody watched this beautiful mm. dancing by this mm. the father and the daughter. Mm. And Katie with white, I think, white geraniums in her hair. And she was so pretty. Mm. And he said it was a ex- really uh, touching sight to see yeah. this dancing so you feel Dickens could always somehow sort of find something something up some some energy yes yes.
1: Um, I find it rather poignant that he I suppose it's not that unusual but that he died after a a morning's writing there's something rather sort of heroic about it Um, and of course in, uh, in a few weeks time we're celebrating 200th anniversary of his birth with a ceremony at the at the graveside in Westminster abbey he didn't actually want to be buried there did he
2: <laughs> it's not what he said uh, he said he wanted to be buried in the kentish countryside right. and um i mean this happens it's happened with other writers like hardy uh it was sort of conveyed to the family that westminster abbey would like to have him right. and um so they cancelled two two possible burials in kent Right. And he was taken early. and they, they, Forster and Charlie went to the dean of Westminster and explained that it had to be an absolutely private ceremony, no public, just 12 of the closest members of the family and friends, no speeches, no music. And they went early on a Monday morning with the train from, from Higham, from Gads Hill, the coffin, and this very small group of people. And the ceremony was done like that. It must have been incredibly moving.
1: Yes. And it is remarkable that sort of 100, almost 150 years later on on this uh, celebration of his birth, there, there are going to be ceremonies in Westminster, around the Southwark It was remarkable that 100,000 people buy your book. I mean, has his reputation... It's
2: 200 in... years since he was born. Since he was born, yes. 200 years, Yes. Yeah. D-
1: Has his reputation remained consistently high ever since 1870, or have there been dips, or is it a particular peak now, do you think?
2: Well, people have gone on, critics have gone on writing about him. Biographers have gone on writing about him. And I think people have gone on reading him. I mean, when I uh, talk, people often come and say, "We've got, our, I've got my father's books, I've got my mother's books. We've mm. always had Dickens' books in yeah. the house. So even if they haven't gone out and bought them, yeah. I really feel they have been part of many people's lives. Yes. Now, I think the young, probably the young, know Dickens more from films and television. But I don't think that's too tragic. Of course, I think it's better to read the words. But in his own lifetime, a lot of people knew his work from seeing dramatizations. And Dickens would sometimes sort of groan about some of the things that were done with his work. But basically, he accepted that. And when he went round doing readings, he adapted the text absolutely freely and and changed it. So I think he was a realist. And I think if he'd been alive now, he would have been thrilled that there should be lots of different versions of his work and reaching out to a public that has a different different way of being educated now.
0: That was Tony Lacey and Claire Tomlin. And now we have an extract from the audiobook edition of Charles Dickens' A Life, featuring a court case that Tomlin herself notes is a very small episode in the life of Dickens, but one that allows us to see him in action when he is at his best as a man.
3: 14th of January, 1840, London. An inquest is being held at Marylebone Workhouse, a muddled complex of buildings spread over a large area between the Marylebone Road and Paddington Street. The Beadle, a parish officer responsible for persuading householders to do their duty as jurors at such inquests, has assembled 12 men. Most of them are middle-aged local tradesmen, but one stands out among them as different. He is young and slight, Smartly dressed and good-looking, neither tall nor short at 5 foot 9 inches, with dark hair falling in curls over his forehead and collar. He is a new resident who has just moved into a fine, airy house with a large garden close to Regent's Park at York Gate. It is number 1 Devonshire Terrace, from which the beadle has made haste to summon him to his duty. It is only a short walk from Devonshire Terrace to the workhouse, but it is a different world he has entered through its gates. He is directed to a room in which the other jurors are talking among themselves as they wait for the inquest to begin. They have come to pronounce on a case of suspected infanticide, a servant girl accused of killing her newborn baby in the kitchen of her employer's house. One of the jurors immediately declares himself in favour of the utmost rigour of the law being applied to the young woman. The new young juror, recognises him as a furniture dealer he suspects of cheating him over the recent purchase of a pair of card tables. Another solid parishioner presses his card into his hand, murmuring that he hopes to be of service to him in the future. He is an undertaker. Before they can settle down for the inquest, the jurors must be taken downstairs to the workhouse mortuary in the basement to be shown the body of the baby. It is lying on a box set upon a clean white cloth, with a surgical instrument beside it that has been used to open it up for examination. The baby has been sewn up again. The new juror, who has a two-month-old baby daughter of his own at home, Katie, reflects that it looks as though the cloth were laid and the giant coming to dinner, but he does not share this thought with his fellow jurors. They agree among themselves that the mortuary is clean and well whitewashed. The foreman says, ''All right, gentlemen.'' "'Back again, Mr Beadle. and they troop upstairs. "'The coroner is Thomas Wakeley, a surgeon "'and until recently a Member of Parliament. "'The new juror is Charles Dickens. "'Now the young woman accused of murder "'is brought in by one of the workhouse nurses. "'She looks weak, ill and frightened. "'She is allowed to sit in one of the horsehair chairs "'and tries to hide her face on the shoulder of the unsympathetic nurse.' Eliza Burgess is twenty four or five years old, a maid of all work and an orphan, which may be why there is uncertainty about her age. It is likely that she grew up in a workhouse, quite possibly this one. Her story is that on Sunday, the fifth of January, she went into labour in the kitchen of her employer's house, number sixty five Edgware Road, where she was the only servant. When the front doorbell rang, She hurried upstairs to let in two lady visitors and by the time she got back to the kitchen the baby, a boy, had been born under her skirts and appeared to be dead. It is not clear whether the birth took place on the stairs but she delivered him herself and must have cut the umbilical cord and cleaned up as best she could. Then she found a box or a pot in which she placed the dead newborn child and hid him under the dresser. Her mistress... Mrs Mary Simmons, sent her up to scrub the front door steps in the cold after her guests left, and then, seeing how ill and thin she looked, taxed her with having given birth. At first she denied it, but then, being threatened with a medical examination, confessed and showed Mrs Simmons where she had put the baby. Mrs Simmons sent for a hackney coach to remove Eliza and her dead child from her house to the Marylebone Workhouse Infirmary. Mrs Simmons appears as an unsympathetic witness and resists questions from Dickens, who hopes to give a favourable turn to the case. The coroner gives a look of encouragement to the juror and the accused girl wails. The next witness is the house surgeon, Mr Boyd, who reports that the accused told him she was seized with labour in the kitchen when the bell was rung by two ladies. She hurried to let them in and... In the act of doing so, the child was born, and on her return, it was dead. He is not able to say positively whether it was born alive or dead. Afterwards, in private conversation, Mr Wakeley tells Dickens that it is very unlikely that the child could have drawn more than a few breaths, if indeed any, since there was foreign matter in his windpipe. Miss Burgess is led away while the jurors discuss the case. Dickens resolves to take on those who are ready to find her guilty of killing her child, and, with some encouragement from Mr Wakeley, he argues against them, so firmly and forcefully that he wins the argument. When Miss Burgess is brought back, the verdict is given. Found dead. She falls on her knees to thank the jurors, with protestations that we were right, protestations among the most affecting that I have ever heard in my life. Then she faints and is carried away. She will still have to be held in prison and appear at the Old Bailey in due course, but the threat of the death penalty has now been taken from her. Dickens, who is without doubt the busiest man of the Twelve, goes home and makes arrangements for her to be sent food and other comforts in prison. He also finds an excellent barrister, Richard Doan of the Inner Temple, a friend and a of the late Jeremy Bentham, to defend her at the Old Bailey trial. That night he cannot sleep. He is overcome with sickness and indigestion, does not want to be alone and asks his wife, Catherine, to sit up with him. The dead baby in the workhouse, the thought of prison and the terrified, ignorant, unhappy young woman prisoner have upset him. In the morning he writes to his closest friend, John Forster, ''Whether it was the poor baby or its poor mother or the coffin'' or my fellow jurymen, or what not, I can't say. He already knows a good deal about prisons, since he has seen his father held in one for dead. Also about babies dying, since two of his younger siblings perished early. Happily his own three little ones are stout and healthy. And he knows about maids of all work, or slaveys, well remembering the one who served his family when he was a boy, straight out of the workhouse where she grew up. He recovers from his sickness and in the evening he and a meet at the Adelphi Theatre to see Jack Shepherd, the highwayman, played on Travesty by Mary Ann Keeley, an actress well known to Dickens, since he had taken lessons in acting from her husband eight years earlier. Charles Dickens had been observing the world about him since he was a child and reporting on what he saw for the past six years as a journalist and then as a novelist. Much of it amused him, but more of it upset him. The poverty, the hunger, the ignorance and squalor he saw in London, and the indifference of the rich and powerful to the condition of the poor and ignorant. Through his own energy and exceptional gifts, he had raised himself out of poverty, but he neither forgot it nor turned aside from the poverty about him. He drew attention to it in his books, and he was personally generous with his time and his money, and not only in the case of Eliza Burgess. Her case came up at the Old Bailey on the 9th of March and was reported in the Times the next day. She was indicted for unlawfully concealing the birth of a male child, delivered on the 5th of January. Her barrister, Mr Doane, pleaded that she was of weak intellect. He was also able to produce a crucial witness to her character, Mr Clarkson, a tradesman in Great Russell Street. She had previously worked for his family and he was willing to do his best for her. Mr Clarkson said his wife was greatly interested in Eliza and had got her a promise of a place in the Magdalen Asylum, an institution that looked after young women who strayed from the path of virtue and did its best to restore them to it. The Clarksons were willing to take her back into their service until she could be admitted there. The willingness of these respectable people to help Eliza was good for her case. The jury found her guilty of concealment, but strongly recommended her to mercy. The judge, Mr. Sergeant Arabin, said that under the circumstances he would respite judgment till next session, and that meanwhile she was free. Nothing more is heard of her except a brief word by Dickens that her sentence had been lenient, and that her history and conduct proved it right. This was written twenty three years later in 1863. Dickens had stored up the memory of the sad young woman. This is a very small episode in the life of Dickens, but it allows us to see him in action, going to the workhouse just along the road from his own home and deciding to help a young woman whose character and history are quite without interest or colour and who comes from the very bottom of the social heap, a workhouse child, a servant and a victim, a victim of ignorance, of gullibility, of an unknown seducer and a harsh employer, and of the assumptions made by respectable jurors.
0: That was an extract from the audiobook edition of Charles Dickens' A Life, read by the actor Alex Jennings. Here at Penguin we've been digging around in the archives and we've found some wonderful recordings of a selection of our classics. We've now restored all of our Dickens titles and we can share with you an extract from Dombey and Son, recorded in 1997 and read by Andrew Sachs.
4: Dombey sat in the corner of the darkened room, in the great armchair by the bedside, and Sun lay tucked up warm in a little basket bedstead in front of the fire, as if his constitution were analogous to that of a muffin, and it was essential to toast him brown while he was very new. Dombey was about eight and forty years of age, son about eight and forty minutes. Dombey, exulting in the long-looked-for event, jingled and jingled the heavy gold watch-chain that depended from below his trim blue coat. "'The house will once again, Mrs. Dombey,' said Mr. Dombey, "'be not only in name, but in fact, Dombey and son. Dombey and son.' The words had such a softening influence that he appended a term of endearment to Mrs. Dombey's name— though not without some hesitation, as being a man but little used to that form of address, and said, Mrs. Dombey, my my dear, a transient flash of faint surprise overspread the sick lady's face as she raised her eyes towards him. He will be christened Paul, his father's name, Mrs. Dombey, and his grandfather's. And again he said, Dombey and son, in exactly the same tone as before. Those three words conveyed the one idea of Mr. Dombey's life. The earth was made for Dombey and son to trade in, and the sun and the moon were made to give them light. He had risen, as his father had before him, in the course of life and death, from son to Dombey, and for nearly twenty years had been the sole representative of the firm. Of those years he had been married ten, and until this present day had had no issue to speak of, none worth mentioning. There had been a girl some six years before, but what was a girl to Dombey and son? Mr. Dombey's cup of satisfaction was so full at this moment, however, that he felt he could afford a drop or two of its contents even to sprinkle on his little daughter. So he said, Florence, you may go and look at your pretty brother if you like. Don't touch him. The child glanced keenly at the blue coat and stiff white cravat, which embodied her idea of a father. But her eyes returned to her mother's face immediately, and she neither moved nor answered. Her insensibility is as proof against a brother as against everything else, said Mr. Dombey to himself. Next moment the lady had opened her eyes and seen the child, and the child had run towards her, and standing on tiptoe had clung about her with a desperate affection. "'Oh, Lord, bless me,' said Mr. Dombey, rising testily. "'Very ill-advised and feverish proceeding this, I'm sure. "'I'd better ask Dr. Pep's if he'll have the goodness "'to step upstairs again, perhaps. "'I'll go down.' "'I needn't beg you,' he added, "'pausing for a moment at the settee before the fire, "'to take particular care of this young gentleman, "'Mrs, um, uh... Block it, sir,' suggested the nurse, "'a simpering piece of faded gentility.' who didn't presume to state her name as a fact, but merely offered it as a suggestion. Of this young gentleman, Mrs. Blockett. Uh, no, sir, indeed. I remember when Miss Florence was born. Ay, ay, aye, said Mr. Dombey. Miss Florence was all very well, but this is another matter. This young gentleman has to accomplish a destiny. A destiny. Dr. Parker Peps, one of the court physicians, "'was walking up and down the drawing-room "'with his hands behind him "'to the unspeakable admiration of the family surgeon.
5: "'Well, sir,' um, said Dr. Parker-Peps in a sonorous voice, "'do you find that your dear lady is at all roused by your visit?' "'Mr.
4: Dombey was quite discomfited by the question. he had thought so little of the patient "'that he was not in a condition to answer it. "'He said that it would be a satisfaction to him "'if Dr. Parker-Peps would walk upstairs again.' "'Good.
5: Uh, We must not disguise from you, sir,' said Dr. Parker-Pepps, "'that there is a want of power in Her Grace, the Uh, uh, Duchess—I beg your Uh, pardon—I confound names, I should say, in your amiable lady—that there is a certain degree of languor and a general absence of elasticity. Uh, Mr. Pilkins, who is best acquainted with the patient's constitution in its normal state, is of opinion, with me—' that uh, nature must be called upon to make a vigorous effort in this instance, and that if our interesting friend, the Countess of Dombey, do I beg your pardon, uh, Mrs. Dombey, um, should not be uh, able, said the family practitioner. To make, said Dr. that effort, said the family practitioner. Successfully, said they both together. Then, added Dr. A crisis might arise which we should both sincerely deplore.
0: And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, please visit our website at penguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, we'd really like to hear them. You can email us at podcast at uk.penguingroup.com, or if you'd rather tweet us, we're at Penguin Podcast on Twitter. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.